you know, they should have kept theaters closed. I had a <laughs> long night. I decided uh, spur of the moment last night. Um, maybe it's the most normal I felt in a while. I uh, I had a wild hair and decided it was time for M. Night Shyamalan uh, to return us to the theaters, which should have never been a thing that happened returning to the theaters. <laughs> that should be a late stage theater watch, I believe, not like a first five going back to the theaters. Um, so uh, I had a long night with old. Um, there, there are many jokes around the Twitterverse and the uh, Letterboxverse about uh, uh, aging while watching the movie. There's uh, many dad jokes out there. Of of course, it's one of those one of those titles where like you can hear the critics just like salivating before the film comes out. They're just already thinking about the headlines that they go they're gonna be able to post. It was like I I, I thought the same thing when they just announced Jordan Peele's new new film, which is going to be called Nope. nope. That's that's just asking for for beratement. <laughs> At best, all you're getting is a hundred he- headlines that are like hard yes or just yep or you know. Um, that, that's the best case. The worst case no. is uh, agreement with the title. And nobody has imagination. You know, no. everyone's a hack. So no no surprise here as well that people are, are uh, pedantically latching on to old. the title. Of, <laughs> yeah, old. I mean, is it also the movie's fault? Um, is it the movie's fault when they call it old or nope? Um, I mean, I guess those aren't titles of movies already, surprisingly. So they're they're kind of odd. I I did see this like when I saw this because I think this was only like very recently. Like, did we learn and Night Shyamalan was having a new film? Like, I don't yeah. remember hearing any production, but that's kind of been the lately the deal with him is like they just kind of pop up suddenly. It's like, oh, there's a new Shyamalan film. Okay, that's uh, I guess. And and then since it's like complete already, people are like, oh, I guess I'll go see it. I, I think that's the strategy and it's working for some reason still. Yeah. Um, um but a lot of his films that like especially lately, they're just going with these like single word titles, you know, and, and it's like, you know, it's the visit or split, you know, and now you got old and it's like it's it's enough to like grab people's attention. I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Wh- whoever's like the, the, the marketing behind Shyamalan's films is just it's it's incredible because basically everybody agrees that they're consistently terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I, there are like two that that people still like, right? I think people have reappraised the village, and understand that that's like a Deacon's um, masterpiece, if not anything to do with Shyamalan. And then uh, uh, people always like Unbreakable. That never really went away as as a fan. Um, Unbreakable and The Sixth Sense were like two back to back that were like, oh, this guy is going somewhere. That was the the new Spielberg phase yeah. of uh, Shyamalan when when uh, the media labeled him as such. And then uh, Signs has a lot of following. I know people like yeah. Signs. Uh, and then, like you said, The Village is like, people have kind of come around on it now. They're like, no, no, this is, this is actually pretty good. Yeah, and good cinematography, I'd say. The, it is great cinematography and good everything else. The consensus is that Split was like a revival. Like, this was like an actual <laughs> good film from Shyamalan in, in the 2010s. Like, he's back, baby. And... Uh, I, I disagree with that considerably, but um, that w- that's the consensus still is that people like Split, and and now we're back to to the garbage era again. That didn't last long. I think Split also had the uh, privilege of having like Anya Taylor Joy just as, she, as soon as she was breaking, like it mm-hmm. was alongside like The Witch and like all these films that were like raising her profile. Um, and and it is hard to deny James McAvoy's total commitment 
to the role there. He he really gives it his all and he's great, but that doesn't save the film from being like utterly terrible in the writing department and its direction. It's yeah, it's 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 just because you got some some hot actors, you know, in the roles yeah. here to make it all of a sudden a, a good film. There are times in old where I wonder if Shyamalan's ever heard actual people having a conversation outside a movie set. Um, the way that people talk and dialogue to each other through all of his movies is very, very head scratching. You don't know where it's coming from, why it's written that way. If he's um, ever really dialogued with a real person, if he's ever had like a, an actual non-movie commitment to a conversation, uh, it's unclear to me. I, I have to wonder, like, I'm, I'm very curious as to where he's at mentally as like a director now yeah. is like is is he someone who's like aware of of these ideas because like obviously i think he is because you have cases like in lady in the water where he like literally like you know <laughs> uh uh like ch chastises and like like uh you know eviscerates Except critics critics and yeah has, like, and, and and uh like in puts his own himself character, in a right yeah like, yeah, yeah. A position is, is a kind of like like a messiah like figure in the film so like there's there's obviously like an awareness there of the you know the rejection of of him by the the you know critics and such yeah and so i wonder if that still exists in like or or if he's like kind of come around on it and now he's like in and in, in, in like leaning into that more so because that's the things that people latch on to and if he's, you know, just kind of like appealing to that, uh, like, like ab, ab kitsch and, you know, like dislike of his films overall. Uh, but I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm willing to give him that much uh, of an extension there, I, especially since I did go and see Glass mistakenly. Yeah. Now I realize it was a mistake in retrospect. And that was just a, an utter like disaster and obviously something that was like entirely sincere. <laughs> That's a bad movie that has some good things that could have gone on there. And maybe on a rewatch, I could find more good things in it. Um, old, I don't think I could find anything <laughs> good in. I, I've seen even reevaluation for The Happening, which I still haven't seen. But uh, people are starting to say that it's like a parody and a satire of a 50s it, come movie. Come on. <laughs> come on. And, you're stretching. You're giving it way too much credit there. Come on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just because a movie is bad doesn't make it effectively a B-movie that works. You, you, can, you can apply retroactive readings to, to whatever you want. But that doesn't mean that that's what it's intended as. Sometimes bad movies are just bad movies yeah i mean sometimes they're badly made because for other reasons then then that's their goal right like, you, you might you might enjoy it through that lens and you might see some value in it but you have to understand that you are applying that lens that was not an intentional facet of the film you know you can you can mistakenly make interesting things it's <laughs> happens every day and isn't old an interesting thing possibly um because like when the reviews started coming out, when my friends' reviews started coming out, they had assigned every possible score to the movie across at least three or four people. And so I thought, isn't this going to be a divisive thing that's interesting and has something to discuss? Uh, I'm finding favorite things. Yeah. I'm finding there's not that much depth there to discuss, though. I, I can't imagine what the conversation on old is in two months. Uh, what are we so going to say other than Thomas McKenzie is, is a good actress, which we already knew. So, so the premise, from my understanding, my cursory understanding of the film, is that yes. there is a beach that you get 
old on. Mm. And uh, Shyamalan does act as the driver to the beach. So uh, he so, is because he's got to be in all of his movies. He's right because he's, he's, he's Hitchcock, and yeah, he's the yeah. new Hitchcock, as we're going to call him <laughs> on the the Twin Geek cast as our official appraisal. Um, the new Hitchcock. Yeah, that was like the Newsweek cover, wasn't it? He was like a the new Spielberg. Uh, that has yeah. Age. Yeah, it was like a in in the late nineties, uh, like right after the success of like the the Sixth Sense. It was you know right. a huge craze. Everyone was like, "It's the the new Spielberg," and no, a little early. For that. <laughs> um, I wonder if like that kind of expectation has also caused him to do strange things because I think he started out like as a writer on like Stuart Little or something, and then you know he just got a lucky break with his scripts and got in there, but. Uh, Maybe not everyone needs that praise right away. They always say in Hollywood, the it's the praise that will kill you, right? Um, the expectations mm-hmm. and the praise that you'll create good work consistently is what kills a lot of Hollywood talents. So, uh, I, I do wonder about that. And I feel that again with old. Uh, maybe he's better when we're, we're in this place where we're uncertain of him. Uh, maybe a desperate Shyamalan is what we really need from Shyamalan. Well, well here's the question as well. Do you, do you think it's not like, like, because it's, Shyamalan's films we don't like generally. Yeah. The mass majority of people don't like. I like we, two of them. Yeah. yeah, but don't you think there's still like more inherent value in someone like him pioneering and and making his own works and being an individual voice than the people who just you know revert over to the big blockbuster films and the franchises and keep churning out you know that crap. Yeah. Like you you at least got to give the guy props for being an, an individual in the system here and consistently churning out new works. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm not even inclined to say original, maybe. But... No, it's based on a French uh, comic book, this movie. So it is adapted. Is it... Oh, okay. I didn't know that. As, like a ten, well. like a decade-old comic book about like, I, people I, I saw, beach. Yeah. I saw the tweet, someone saying that Shyamalan went to the beach and had a revelation about having wrinkly skin in the water. <laughs> and I just assumed that was that was the actual premise. That might also have been why he got onto the project. But I do appreciate it, though. I'd rather watch this one out of ten Shyamalan movie than a, another four out of ten Marvel movie myself. Um, I would rather engage with his worst work than uh, someone else's mediocre work inside the uh, Marvel system or something. So that's cool. Um, not just to point out Marvel, there. Um, I look at the rest of the box office. And that's how I landed on old because my AMC thing resubscribed without my knowing. And I realized uh, this was the end of the first week and I might as well get my picks in and, and actually use this thing since I paid, you know, 25 bucks. Um, so free movie was old last night and uh, a movie I paid for it uh, by subscription, <laughs> but um, I don't know. I'm still happy to be back. I'm still happy to be at the movies. Although uh, this one makes me think they should close them all down and that we don't need <laughs> movies anymore. That there's no reason to podcast about them. Look, 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 Calvin. Like half of your experience at the theater is surrounded by watching terrible movies <laughs> in in mediocre, you know, settings like like the, these multiplexes and such. So I don't see how this is anything less than a homecoming, really. <laughs> I did say it's the most natural I felt. I gotta say because it's a horror movie. It is the happiest I've been in the theater this year, watching the horror trailers, uh, watching Candyman uh, next to Last Night in Soho and Halloween Kills. Uh, somehow that was the most excited I've been to be at the theater. <laughs> then once old started, it was all downhill. Once the actual features started, I didn't have any more fun. Um, 
it's so bad, man. Like they're, they're <laughs> sitting on the beach and they're aging and uh, things are happening that don't seem relevant to other things. There's no cause and effect. Uh, things happen over here and then someone starts stabbing a guy over here uh, because what? of the racial thing, because of this doctor who's losing his mind and his memory and then he becomes a racist and starts stabbing the black guy. And then a, a five-year-old girl ages 10 years and suddenly she's pregnant. Um so we see a five-year-old get pregnant, but effectively she's she's aged into that. So uh, then she loses the baby because it ages too quickly to be cared for. Uh, it's it's really a, a ride. Um, uh, that sounds very wild. Do, does I feel anyone... like I gave you too much info there. I mean, maybe just a lot at once. And yes. I need a second to absorb. So like obviously with these like like kind of premise-driven films like this, there's always kind of like a loophole or something. So right. Does anybody think to leave the beach? Like, they does try. that? Do... A few of them try, and they get like knocked out. They they get like, there's like some magnetic shit going on. <laughs> it's like an insane like, like... clown posse magnets. How do they work? What? <laughs> so so it's like just like this nebulous like literary device to prevent them from leaving. That you know, it's it. Is it actually explained in any way? Eventually, yeah. Um, eventually it gets there at like the last 15 minutes of the movie, which is, I mean, the whole movie is like a twist, right? Like the whole right. movie is Shyamalan's, oh, I'm so smooth, here's your twist shit. Well, um, that, that's the thing I gotta know. Like if it's a Shyamalan film, there's a twist. There's something in the last 10 minutes there. But that, no. That, no? No, there's nothing that like, like that kind of like, subverts things or, or, or turns it around nothing like revealed at the end it's such an anti-twist at the end it's such an anti-ending too it's such an anti-climax to everything that came before it that it's it, it amounts to nothing i mean it's the worst part of the movie that i didn't like already um uh, it doesn't have like the Shyamalan like oh shit you couldn't have expected this it's exactly what you expect to happen which is you know well, I'll give you two options. The main characters either escape or they don't. But um, <laughs> how would you end a movie about people being stuck on a beach? Would you have them just die there? <laughs> I mean, I, I that seems like the most logical thing to me is that okay. like the, the characters die there, and like, then they nothing happens. <laughs> uh, yeah, people yeah, go to a beach and, and they die. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it's some meditation on like the the, the fleeting, you know, uh, nature of life or, or some bullshit. I don't know. You know, like, if that happened, I wonder if my 1 out of 10 would be, like, an 8 out of 10 suddenly. <laughs> like, like, if it were actually a reflection on, like, the time I spent, like, sitting there watching it and what actually <laughs> happened on the screen. The, the, the camera the camera zooms out and it's just, it's a theater screen instead and you're looking yeah. at the, you know, it's from the audience and you're like, oh shit, I'm getting old. <laughs> and it just, like, well, it zooms out and it's just Shyamalan sitting there in the beach getting his wrinkles and <laughs> looking into the camera he does address the audience and thank them for coming back to the theater so uh, does he what yeah uh, at the no at the start like they have the recorded director clips oh okay okay movie. yeah so yeah. so not not like part of the, the movie okay yeah. you, you made it sound like it comes like at, at the end of there like after no. the credits Shyamalan just like pops out and it's like hey y'all another thing that would have improved the movie for me but um no, uh, it's worse than Lady in the Water. So that's where about where I'm at with that. Um, is this is this your the the worst film of the year for you so far? Or is there worse? <laughs> the uh, the fun part is it's like my fourth worst film of the year. I, I well yeah because I, I gotta know how does this fare next to the 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 the, the Trump of the Dead one thingy? 
Oh, oh yeah, Army of the Dead one. too. The the one you you talked to me about it last week, the one with the girl who uses the vibrator with Trump's face. Oh, I didn't. I don't rank that one. I that short <laughs> just can't be ranked alongside <laughs> actual it's, films. Is it is it uh, barely definable as a film? All yeah, right, that's fair. Yeah. Well, I, I guess, mean, that's yeah, like I guess, a vignette. I guess, Trump masturbation. Um. Yeah, me- me- measure it against the uh, the indecipherable visual mess of Army of the Dead. Then for me, I have it below Space Jam and above Army of the Dead. If if that's helpful in any way, uh, down at the bottom of the list, um, um, below Tom and Jerry somehow. Um. Interesting. <laughs> you know, you know, it's it's funny that like earlier I made I made kind of a stand there for Shyamalan as like a y- unique. Yeah person making uh original films i don't know that i'd extend this the same courtesy to Zack snyder there no, uh, um, <laughs> even if he is doing it i still wouldn't extend any courtesies to Zack snyder in general <laughs> well yeah uh, i have it i have it above uh army of the dead and a writer's odyssey which was just a terrible uh chinese um cg fest there was no meat on that at all so it is better than those and i'm glad that he makes movies I'll go see Shyamalan movies because at least they're interesting failures. And always failures at that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to fail, at least fail in a bigger way than, uh, you know, just co-signing some big brand. Like I said, every other movie in the theaters is a brand right now. There's uh, G.I. Joe was my next option that I could have seen. Are are they Uh, making another G.I. Joe? One out right now. Yeah. Yeah. Snake Eyes is the G.I. Joe movie out right now. Okay. Which I might. Did people see, see the other ones? I didn't know. I didn't. Did you? Uh, no. Okay. Okay. Well, I guess somebody is. Well, that's the other interesting thing. Like I said, like whatever Shyamalan's doing, it's working because people are seeing his movies all the time. It's it's like the most popular film right now uh, of the moment. Which yeah. again, yeah. for for something that is so, you know, consistently maligned, you know, a director who is the the punching bag of you know the the entire. Uh, circle of, of, of film critics here like he's he's doing it he's working all right yeah. so i guess we'll i guess we'll talk about him again in another couple of years and just randomly it'll just happen the happening it, we should call it, it, it when it's you think we'll ever out. cover one of his films for like a full episode here absolutely not we already did glass <laughs> but never <laughs> oh, again. that's true yeah. that's true we did that's the one we, we were willing to give him <laughs> i would do the village uh, uh someday once we ran know. out of every other movie yeah, every, every other movie first. <laughs> Once we've done every other Deacons movie in existence, I, I would do The Village. So uh, with that, uh, I'm Calvin. This is David. So now you know uh, who's been talking. Um, 20 minutes in, the, the name reveal, of course, as, as we often do. And now uh, we've cleared out uh, old. And as uh, the Sparks would say, uh, so may we start. There's fear in them all, but they can't let it show. They're underprepared, but that may be enough. The budget is large, but still, it's not enough. So may we start? May we start? May we? May we not start? So may we start? Um, out, out with the old and in with the the new. Yes, uh, Annette. In with the uh, out with the old. In with the and and new Annette. A new Annette. The it new works. Annette movie from Sparks and Leo Carrera. Um, 
Do you know anything? Uh, you know musicals. I wonder if you're interested in these modern French musicals. I'm I'm literally looking up this movie okay. right now because I don't I don't. So know it's anything. the Adam Driver, the Adam Driver movie with Sparks. We talked about Adam, it during Adam the Driver. Sparks episode uh, a couple weeks is, ago. Here it is. Uh, Annette. Right, right. You you mentioned them having something to do with it. That finally they got to make their French movie after they, you know, they wanted to work with Tati and they wanted to work with all these French directors. They were very influenced right. by Godard. And then now they finally get to make their French movie. The the scenario here is largely written by them as is all the music. It's a by far the best score of the year. Uh, that, there's so much going on here. I just want to say Adam Driver is having the best career of anybody <laughs> right now yeah like just look at look at his body of work it's pretty fucking incredible and just look the, at his the body people you, have, yeah have just look that at that torso? too damn a, <laughs> uh, yeah, that guy, I mean, that guy is a, a hunk ever since like a uh, patterson i think something's developed where he's your countable um art star for like a drama and um, yeah but but dude is also like you know making his name in, in the star wars stuff like i think that's yeah. what really like kind of kick things off right or you know i mean i don't know he was already doing interesting shit before star wars you know like what i'm, I'm looking at his credits here he was he was working with spielberg and lincoln he was in oh, yeah inside lewin davis from the cohen's so like he was he was already up there and then like star wars really blew him up and then you know just working with scorsese and in, in silence soderberg uh spike lee and of course jarmusch well, yeah. he reminds me of like those old school Hollywood actors in a lot of ways because he got his military service and then he came mm -hmm. in like a hardened actor, like a very dedicated, hardworking actor that's essentially outworked everyone in his generational class. Like that's the kind of guy you had like in the 40s, you know, it's like these guys come back from war and being like, we're hardened, we're respected, people want to work with us and we're cool. Like, well, it's, well, it's a, interesting because yeah. like like other uh you know, like hardened actors of that era and such as well. Like he's able to oscillate between, you know, like real artistic work, you know, with with a variety of directors, but also like more more kind of pulpy mainstream driven stuff. He's kind of like a, a new age Burt Lancaster. <laughs> That's a good comparison. I could see his type being a Burt Lancaster type. And I like effectively just like him in any role. I like to see Adam Driver on the screen. I like how he performs. Um and here he has a great range too. His voice is very deep, and he could really key into something uh, big there. He plays a stand-up comedian, a failing stand-up comedian, who's kind of at the well. I'd say a very successful one, but he's at a difficult transitionary point in his career. He wants to go have a kid with uh, Marion uh, uh, Cowdyard. Uh, I guess you would that, say. No, that's definitely not right. I don't think Cowdyard Cow sounds right. Cowdyard. I don't know. Yeah. There's like there's two L's there. <laughs> But I guess we don't need them. <laughs> okay. Uh, our friends will correct us later, but we're going to go with Cowdy Yard. <laughs> this, this week it's Cowdy Yard. Yes, this week it's Cowdy Yard. And I don't know an alternative. Cowdy so. Lard? I don't okay. know. I, I leave the mispronunciations to you usually. I hope this one's correct out of all the ones. Um, she uh, She has a baby called Annette and it does like the... Have you seen the Twilight movies by chance? <laughs> it does do I look do I look like someone who's seen the Twilight movies? Yes. 
I, um, I know you have because you're set in Washington and, and you have this, you know, demanding need to see anything that has to do with, with our region of the world here. But <laughs> my, my, my favorite Twilight movie is the second from the last one, which is a pregnancy body horror film um, about her giving birth to this like alien looking baby, which is kind of how Annette goes. Um, the baby looks like a, a fucking alien, like a, a freakish, like like a racer head. Are we talking here? Maybe. I mean, it, it's it's like doll-like, and it's uh, it's very strange in how it moves and and kind of acts. Uh, I mean, it looks like ethereal, like a, a weird, like outer space baby, so like like two thousand one space baby. Yes. <laughs> and um, uh, the songs are so big, and I don't know how to describe a Leo Carax film. I've I've never figured him out. Uh, I don't I don't understand Holy Motors, which is a movie I really like. I like Dennis Levant, and I, I don't understand it at all. I don't know what's happening in Holy Motors. <laughs> that, that one's a, a kind of con, contentious one, right? But one that people seem to like or respect yeah. at least quite a lot. I think uh, people again, respect like, it. I don't know if they that, like yeah, it. That, that, my understanding is, is essentially your take there as well, is that I like it, but I don't understand it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I feel the same way about Annette. I have to write the review. I, I haven't figured out any words to really in the review i don't i don't have a good frame for for leo carax and what he's doing and where he's pulling from um because it is so original and um i mean i could talk about like the colorimetry and how he's designed the sets and how adam driver wears green and you know uh cowdy art i think i went with um, uh, for pronunciation i think how she wears like reds and, and then another characters in blacks so i could talk about what those mean thematically in the movie but i can't even describe to you what the movie is really about other than this uh this comedy star is really struggling with this singer girlfriend and uh, they go on like big sets and they have big showpiece musicals um all of it's designed by sparks so all the music's wonderful uh <laughs> I, it's the first time i've seen a musical where there's like a like simulated oral sex happening while, while the song's happening, like while she's singing and while they're actually fucking there's, there's, they're singing to each other uh, about how in love they are. I've, I've never seen that in a musical. So I've never seen that level of intensity in a musical either. And that modernism, uh, Leo Carax seems to be really onto something with his movies. That I don't think anyone else is really doing. Um, I think you could see it in like a Claire Denis film, like, like when she has Dennis Levant, uh, dancing um at the end of a uh, boot travail i think you could see like something happening there that's leading into his films but uh, i don't have any other points for it and um, i don't have any <laughs> reference points or or ideas of what musicals inspired this weird artistic work i don't know if you have any ideas i don't i don't know i mean your description was like so thorough and and sent to such an exacting image in my mind that uh you know searching for something that even comes close is it's difficult <laughs> i definitely need to figure it out in my review because i'm so confused it sounds it sounds interesting at least like like the total enigma of it is at yeah. least you know the the fascinating thing like oh it's it's so indescribable here that you know but you know and also good that you know it's something to be seen to be believed yeah. so it's it sounds like you're you're giving it an endorsement but you know uh for perhaps like a still a confused uh, endorsement <laughs> yeah, yeah like like a, a semi uncertain just like difficult to describe endorsement yeah it's pretty unplaceable it's not like any other musical i've ever seen and it it is thoroughly a musical it's not quite sung through but nearly there um 
I don't know. Some of the artifice around it seems a little plain for how weird the rest of it is, but I, I'll, have is, a, I'll have more notes in the review. Is is Adam Driver a good singer? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's very good. Yeah. No very surprise. good range. Yeah. Not surprised there. He's great at everything. He's able to like <laughs> vacillate between like these extreme highs and uh, he could do any kind of singing, I believe. So I, he's so great. Um, it's unfair, really, how much it, he can it, do well. It, it really is. How am I supposed to compete? How am I supposed to go go home at night? To my fiance and and say I'm sorry, honey. I'm I'm not as good as Adam Driver. I can only try so hard. I'm sorry, I'm not Adam Driver. It's a good no. line for all men who've seen his movies. Um, well, speaking of things that aren't Adam Driver, uh, it's another <laughs> David's documentary. <laughs> it's not about Adam Driver. No, no. Subra- shock, shock. This one is not about Adam Driver this time. Uh, instead, the the equally beloved figure, uh, John Krafulski, and. Uh, his his show, Ren and Stimpy. Every, you know everyone. Figure. Everyone loves that guy, right? Yeah, very popular now, today. That that was my impression walking away. Is that there is nothing wrong with uh, Ren and Stimpy creator John Krakowski? <laughs> That's what you got out of the documentary. <laughs> it's all happy and joy. Yeah, happy, happy, joy, joy. From uh, last year came out. Oh boy, twenty twenty. <laughs> Uh, I thought this was, this was quite an interesting documentary. I, I liked uh, how it was presented and made and, and the subject matter. It was all interesting from top to bottom. Uh, your review on the site, I think, uh, very thoroughly covers a lot of the interesting points, uh, particularly a point about burying the lead, I think, as you, as you <laughs> yeah. put it there. Yeah, there's there's definitely some important information that doesn't come up till about the last 20 minutes of the film. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh you I mean like like they like kind of hinted something problematic in the beginning, in, like the very beginning. Uh but then just by nature of like chronology, they they don't mention it at all uh until it comes up at the end. Which of course uh is is the the, the real issue, the central issue here being John Kravolsky's uh predatory nature and his his preying upon and, you know, he's using his power and position to prey upon young female fans, which is really gross and be, and terrible. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say it becomes increasingly difficult that he's very problematic and hard to work around until it like the bottom falls out and it's like, oh, he's a predator too. Yeah, though they they make it very clear that he's not a, a an inherently good person, and you get a a little bit of a psychological profile not just you know of him but from him you know and and his history with his with his father and such and a lot of the, the issues and the general uh approach you know and, and like like full commitment and control he demands over things I, at no point are you like yeah this this was a a, a, a good dude who lost the path you right. know no it's that was definitely all always there so like that information when you get it at the end it's like oh, that's not surprising that's just further disappointing but i must say watching him in interviews too it, it's very easy to see why everyone was kind of drawn to him mm-hmm. and, and and everyone kind of rallied around him he has this you know energy and, and spirit about him and and you know desire to create um that that thrusts the you know m- many good artists into the field there i think there is something that uh robin wright one of his uh you know the the, the main victim from his mm-hmm. abuses uh said towards the end of the documentary which is something like you know you can still 
enjoy the work of you know uh to toxic people and you know the the work they create that is is spurred by that without you know demanding or or you know uh advocating more for those people you don't need to be a bad person to create art essentially yeah and you don't have to advocate for them by by seeing their work essentially and you don't have to be bad well, yeah. to create it yeah well and, and and she also made like a good point of saying she doesn't encourage people not to see it or enjoy it anymore yeah you know that there is this idea of of you know enjoying something separate from the the person even though even when that work is obviously a very personal reflection you know and in sight you know kind of kind of takes a lot of them and it's hard to separate the the work you know from them because it is so much they made it yeah yeah and it's obviously like ready to be so obviously an extension of john Krafulski, but also as he says as well in it like it's not just him you know there are so many other people who are very key to creating the the characters and the stories and and as they kind of make a point throughout the film is arguably uh many of the other contributors are kind of what made it great because yeah. as you kind of saw when Krafulski was really like let loose on like the couple episodes that they revived later with Spike TV or whatever, or in his other endeavors afterwards, he's just it's when a mess, let loose. Yeah. It's a it's a total fucking mess, and all of the worst indulgences that <laughs> well, the kind of gross out appeal of Ren and Stimpy has is just taken you, to an extreme. I think like the greatness of Ren and Stimpy is like his extremism, but it's really the genius of it is his animators that restrained him and focused it and channeled it into like a accessible work for an audience. And and, and the uh the producers who kind of demanded demanded more yeah. sentimentality and pushed him to to make something that had a kind of more more heart to it and then his reaction to that by kind of paradizing <laughs> that idea of heart uh right. and and you have something genuine there that you're working with as opposed to just something that, that's like cruel and you know uh mean-spirited like all the way through uh Ren and Stimpy was a show that I somewhat enjoyed growing Only up. Somewhat. I, was, <laughs> I was pretty young when it was like airing regularly. And so okay. the extreme nature of it, I think I was not able to appreciate at that time. But obviously viewing it now and having a, a, a better eye for artistry, you can see a lot more of the work that goes into it and this kind of this underground influence in this, you know, and particularly when they give you the history of animation of the time yeah. and stuff and how it was uh, really working against this kind of more more wholesome conservative image of the era uh, and how just revolutionary it was then by that. So as a, as a documentary that uh, is giving you the history of the development of this, you know, pivotal show of the 90s that kind of spearheaded a huge change in, uh, you know, the entertainment of the, the era. Uh, I think it's very well constructed and it's interesting to see and all the, the talking heads they get uh add a lot of insight and interest to it mm -hmm. um the, and the development all the way through um you know from inception to to execution to including all the other players because it is one of those cases and they do talk about how yeah the show is really the brainchild of uh john Krafulski, but it's also not it's also the component of so many others they even argue you know it was like this was not originally an idea that he birthed out of his mind and brought to nickelodeon you know it was like it was a slew uh, you know there, there were a couple characters in a sketchbook that the producers saw you know pointed out and said i want something about them I, they appeal to me and then everyone else like the background artists doing these kind of revolutionary you know the kind of uh you know uh trippy kind of tableaus for the background of certain things the, you know the ideas of these highly detailed close-ups and stuff that you know accentuates the, the 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 grossness of things and of course the importance of 
you know, the, the, the voice work and stuff like uh, Billy West, you know, who, who's mm-hmm. a terrific voice actor um, doing a, a Stimpy there and all that. And, and just a lot of the interesting influence and stuff that went into it. Obviously, I I uh, was very interested uh, to learn of the, the kind of the classic film influences on the show, like Ren being kind of this extension of uh, Peter Lorre being yeah. and, and everything animated. P, the, the the Peter Lorre persona is it has an animated iteration in just about everything. Yeah, uh, he's he's really like so uh, um, you know uh, omnipresent in media, and then like the idea of uh, Kirk Douglas being like this this kind of pivotal point of like uh, overacting, and you know that that uh, Krafowski really. Uh, fixated on for, for all the characters and, and seeing that and, and the way that it's presented in the documentary with these very, uh, you know, clear juxtapositions uh, in the split screens there, it really highlights those uh, influences. And so it's just, I thought, really interesting to see unfold. And even though the exploration of the problematic stuff at the end did feel not not as thoroughly incorporated as it should have been mm-hmm. and, and considered, it was there and it, it was uh, and it was given ample time and, and dealt with and very obviously showcased. Uh, I, and I think the it does a proper enough job of, of very uh, obviously condemning John Krafowski and his actions and even yeah. himself and, and allowing him to express himself uh, on the matter, on the issue here uh, and give him the opportunity to say how he feels and then allow us to you know, gauge how we feel about that. You know, it's it's not moralizing uh, necessarily about it. It's not demanding that you feel one way or the other about him. It's it's allowing you to see how he has processed this, how he has made his apologies or not made his apologies in certain cases, and uh, you know allows you the the opportunity to to condemn or embrace him or any matter in between. Because again, it's not you know a, a black and white thing. He's you know he's already kicked out of the industry, you know, he's, he's retired for, for all intents and purposes. Uh, you know, there's not a, a whole lot more that's, that's can, or, you know, or, or should there's be. There's no more consequences available. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, he's already being held responsible for, for his actions here, you know, and, and all you can do going forward is make your own judgments about him and his work and you know uh how how that's affected you over time if ren and sippy was ever something that was important to you for me that's like birthed out of like this whole um idea of 90s television that i was really into which is like the mtv liquid television era which is just all wild animation and things just uh, uh like a countercultural push against the conservative nature of tv like you're saying which mm-hmm. the 90s was really great for and our modern children's films are really horrible at um, there are very few modern alternatives that are witty and uh, do a very good job satirizing the, because the cost is so high to create the, the modern uh, version of things like frozen and, and whatnot from Disney that it's, how do you satirize it without just looking like, you know, a much worse version? Well, that's what kind of sucks about living in a, in a semi-progressive society is that our art uh, is not as interesting just by nature of like there's <laughs> yeah. less to to uh, go against uh, but we're Without also looking like, horrible right <laughs> yeah yeah but, but we're also in a time that is like not progressive enough for for a lot of us so we're like in this weird middle ground where we're not getting the benefits of either 
Like, we have shitty cartoons and no healthcare, you know? Yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> well, yeah, not only shitty cartoons, but no good parodies of them because they're they're shitty, but um, they're trying to be progressive, at least. Mm-hmm. So. I don't, I, there, there is apparently some interesting stuff going on with with animation you know i don't want to dismiss it all entirely out of oh yeah it's on a smaller scale yeah uh well also a lot more adult oriented um animation is is really having a boon right now so that's nice but uh it's it's not across the board unfortunately and particularly for cinema uh animation is is really struggling at the moment yeah i wish like smart things were being designed for ezra that were counter-cultural but what would those even be anymore so um, so I mean, we need to get Ralph Baskey out of retirement is, is yeah. what I'm saying here. <laughs> I enjoyed Animaniacs is all I'll say. <laughs> that was yeah, the was last good. one I felt that was like, a okay, look, they could take on Trump and say it like they, they, yeah, they're not afraid yeah. to say it. None of our uh, other cartoons will fucking say anything. So. We're supposed to get a season two of that still. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to get to that when it comes out. Uh, I, uh, go back and listen to our Animaniacs podcast if, if you want to hear more fawning over uh, over that revival i should get through this episode so i could get back to my little pony episode 25 <laughs> um season four she's watched all of those now um not to get too off track <laughs> <laughs> jesus christ uh speaking of mtv <laughs> uh how about uh woodstock 99 uh which was a very ever-present cultural force that was a a counterculture in a way that was examining what uh, an old generation thought a new generation should experience of their uh, nostalgic Woodstock, not exactly as it existed, but as it exists in their memories. Uh, it's it's well known for having <laughs> Limp Biscuit as its major act, um, although it had like Metallica and Megadeth and uh, Korn, uh, Kid Rock, um, you know, like all the names <laughs> that white people liked in yeah. 99. <laughs> It had about 30 that's, acts. That's a very good way of describing that pool, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> they had about 30 acts and only three members of the, all those acts combined were women and they were solo women. Uh, there was Cheryl Crow and Jewel. And I think one other that I'm forgetting. Um, but there's, there's so little emphasis on that because all of the emphasis is on the white anger that arose from this Woodstock, which is just like a, a festering pool of male toxicity uh really a really gross portrait of male rage and how music was so diverse in the early 90s and it 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 creates like this premise that like Kurt Cobain was like a a gateway into you know more experimental vulnerable rock music he was wearing women's clothing and women were wearing men's clothing and grunge um there was a lot of diversity and people were trying new things and uh, they were accepting of outside voices. And then uh, suddenly, uh, I think uh, the, the acts that followed that and were inspired by that were a little bit less progressive. They took the vulnerability, but they just made it like a white male vulnerability. And they were fucking screaming it into a microphone. Like they, they took that vulnerable nerviness of the 90s music and they channeled it into like new metal, which is just like uh, like thrash metal and four other components of metal combined into into one like shrieking white. Is, is, is new yeah. metal the worst thing humans have ever created? Yeah. It might be. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, new metal might just be the worst human expression of, of 
anguish that that we've ever come up with. It's not. Um, it's not like real anguish is the thing. That's that's the thing with all these yeah, like like. Well, is it? New... Is it not real? Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. Like from from my experience with it, which admittedly is uh, limited by intention, uh, it it feels all like 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 uh, you know uh, per, you know pretending like like it's not. <laughs> Uh, it's not a sincere kind of kind of suffering yeah. or, or form of expression. It feels like an act and a, and a facade, and and you know that's part of this idea of putting on the the makeup and the outfits and and the the pretense here to to be like like this. Uh, you know, as opposed to coming from like a sincere place of of darkness, you know, per yeah. se that, that you got in something like Cobain's music. I mean, yeah, that I mean, they're not all like like on the heroin, like all those '90s guys, like really suffering through it and telling you their pain. Instead, I mean, they're on like the meth and the, the you know the the stimulants, and they're like kind of tweaking out and and yelling about it and how they broke up with their girlfriend. I'm sure they have a little bit of pain there, and I'm sure Fred Durst wrote break stuff because he was angry at something, right? Like, uh, but then when he sang it at an audience of two hundred thousand people. And they all revolted in a riot against the uh, the form of Woodstock '99. It was a uh, is based on army base, which is interesting and kind of goes against the peace and love of the of the old yeah. Woodstock. This this sounds like the exact opposite <laughs> of the '69 Woodstock in just yeah. about every conceivable way. <laughs> so that's the interesting thing. So it also goes into like the reality of '69. Like people died at the event. People ran out of food and lit like the shelters on fire. Like we have that one Woodstock documentary, which is very rosy and paints a, a very pretty portrait, which is also the accepted reality. But uh, festivals are always bad news <laughs> until like Coachella, which is like I, the year after Woodstock 99. That kind of made it more diverse again. And I, I just like to say, I think that any large gathering of people will generally lead to calamity. Like Especially, that's just human nature. <laughs> what if it's all white, angry men? Like, what if there's no diversity in it? Um, it it gets pretty bad. I mean, there's a lot of female nudity in it, which is. Uh, I wonder if they could even find shots of Woodstock '99 without women being nude in those shots. Uh, but the men demanding that of them, and kind of like that that perception of you're you're there, you have to have your tits out, is uh, pretty gross and. Uh, despite the movie continuing to say that, it's also a movie that looks like Girls Gone Wild because every shot has it, women with their breasts out. Like maybe do more Talking Heads interviews if you if you can't find footage without uh, tits on the camera. <laughs> uh, that it's full of that, and it's full of uh, really gross white anger, that which it tries to connect to like modern day message board rambling and Facebook and Reddit threads, but I think it's very tenuous to like connect a, a history of white anger and to start it at Woodstock 99. Like, yeah, I mean, it, it probably yeah. goes back further than that. Again, like the, <laughs> yeah. uh, probably a lot further than that. Like the whole history of rock honest. and roll, right? Like is, uh, is angry uh, how about white just males. the history? How about just the history of white people? Yeah. <laughs> Why not just start at the beginning? I, I just feel like creating a, a it, one-on-one between like Woodstock 99 and Trump era is really kind of dangerous. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I see I see a connection there, and yeah. I and I and I sympathize with this idea of wanting to trace back the the current issues of like like this this you know uh, 
this this epidemic of of white you know uh misplaced white rage that that is kind of you know seeping throughout our our country but and 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 you can see that evolution through you know uh the continued you know push in in you know in the separation of uh the various cultures of the country and you know the you know various conservative governments continuing to create divides like that um you know and, and that happened you know uh even throughout the, the the 90s with like the Clinton administration and such too it was still an ongoing political issue but obviously uh it doesn't start there you know yeah. it, it goes back earlier well, if you if you want to pinpoint a specific time period like or, you you kind of got to go like like i guess nixon nixon is is kind of where in in terms of that if you want to point it out politically reagan really you know ramps things up that whole era so let's let's go a little farther back let's start in the 80s how about that if you have to like do it in the frame of this documentary you know like yeah, the whole it, it, white history like maybe i maybe trace it back instead of just saying like maybe these bands were a response to a white rage that was already there maybe like trace back what that was starting with what you're saying like the history of this well it, yeah it's obviously it's a reflection of a of a wider cultural issue so like you said there to to try and like uh in in a bubble essentially here tie woodstock 99 to trumpism is uh like again like you said tenuous i think is the best way to put it it's it's there like obviously there's some kind of connection but they're not direct you know one does not lead into the other inherently and effectively i think you could do a really interesting profile i really think this should have been broken into a series um this is the ringer the website the ringers uh profile on music they're doing six of these this is the first of six um but i think this should have been a series it was all it started as a podcast series which the ringer did which is one of the best that they've done uh which is just profiling like the whole thing and going like moment by moment and i think it really needs that intersectionality where it's looking at each issue through a through a frame of the event and i think it needs to be broken down instead of like one protracted movie and then you have like wesley morris who i really respect new york times writer uh, just saying that's linked to trump i mean that's that means something but just saying it outright is kind of just saying it um yeah it, it it sounds very like 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 buzzwordy there that you're just trying to to elicit a kind of fiery connection without actually <laughs> applying the proper context that leads you to such a conclusion. Again, I, I don't think it's a, a wrong uh, thought to draw, but there's additional information there that is much needed. Speaking of fiery, um, so they had a vigil for the for the losses of Columbine, and they decided the best idea was to hand out candles to the um, 200,000 people at Woodstock 99. Um, and they lit everything on fire. Uh, of all of the production, everything that was... Uh, lightable they lit on fire with their vigil candles um and so red hot chili peppers were playing and they were summoned back on stage they decided to connect it to woodstock 69 and they played the only uh jimmy hendrix song they knew which is fire fire um, so they uh they got everyone built up into a fervor and they they incited further rage um there you know there's there's something poetic about causing mass destruction with vigil candles uh there is the the irony of that is just it's it's picturesque really (laughs) i i'd put this next to like the fire festival documentaries we got two of them (laughs) last year um i think this is significantly better than those and worth examining more than those are which those are like very social media and like uh look at these people getting conned and uh isn't it funny that 
this happened and uh isn't Ja Rule a funny personality in 2021 but um this is a lot deeper I think like this has removed enough to be like okay let's examine these bands and what they mean and let's talk to them and talk to people who attended and find out what really went wrong and and why the organizers are mostly responsible here it's good to hear something positive uh, about it in terms of a documentary because it has sounded like misery mostly <laughs> like the experience so of it just just miserable. describing yeah. yeah just describing woodstock 99 i'm like ah oh, this seems like the worst thing <laughs> yeah i mean honestly i'll probably cover the rest of the the ringers music box on hbo uh, I, this was interesting enough and and they have a pretty diverse profile of artists coming after this so, uh we'll see cool cool i'm i'm excited to hear more about it when that comes all right um I think it's time for our movie of the week. Yeah, uh, the movie of the week. Movie the of the week. Week, week, week. The movie of the week is uh, an adaptation, somewhat. <laughs> of a, sort of. Of um, Ernest Hemingway's To Have and To Have Not. <laughs> <laughs> as as uh, Hawks uh, famously called it. He's bobbing the piano just to raise the price of a ticket to the land of the free. Well, he say his home's in Frisco where they send the rice, but it's really in Tennessee. That's why he say, I need someone to love me, need somebody to carry me home to San Francisco. Okay, yeah. can you just read the quote? It's too good. I, I just need the quote in here. I can't let it go. Sure, sure. I, uh, I sent it to you in the Yeah, I got the tra okay. tracking it down again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and do a fake Howard Hawks voice should we, should we act this out? Should I be Hemingway? You want to Hawks it Oh, up? oh, yeah. I'm sure you would love, love to be Hemingway. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Ernest, you're a damn fool. You need money, you know. You can't do all the things you'd like to do. If I make $3 in a picture, you can get one of them. I can make a picture out of your worst story. What's my worst story? That goddamn bunch of junk called to have and to have not. You can't make anything out of that. Yes, I can. You've got the character of Henry Morgan. Harry Morgan. <laughs> I think you... <laughs> I'm going to redo that one. Okay. Yes, I can. You've got the character of Harry Morgan. I think I can give you the wife. All you need to do is make a story about how they met. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and and that's how it started. <laughs> end scene. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, they were on a fishing trip uh, in 1939, I think a year after To Have and To Have Not, as we'll further reference it, uh, came out. Um, and and he challenged him. Uh, he, well, not really. I mean, Hawks didn't it's, exactly challenge him so much as to say, "I'm making a movie about your book, and you're gonna like it because you'll make money off it, right?" Because mm -hmm, because Hemingway never had any money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was uh, always destitute because he spent and he was an alcoholic. Yep. Uh, and so yeah, this was I th I think one of the, like, the early. There's a couple of Hemingway adaptations prior to this, like uh, the For Whom the Bell Tolls and such. But this is one of the more noteworthy ones, which is surprising because it's, uh, it's not. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's not one. Well, should I just say right away the differences? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm. Well, I'm very interested as as our resident Hemingway aficionado here. I'm interested to know how to have and to have not haves not. 
Uh, to, the, to haves or the Harry Morgan? Should I just say what's similar instead of what's different? <laughs> since uh, since every layer is effectively different. I mean, even the one thing that is similar is different. Um, there's there's not something that's the same in the movie and the book. Like there's <laughs> there's no concurrence. There'd be no point in like comparing them and compartmentalizing what parts each one has because uh okay harry morgan that's the character in the book and that is the one thing that works well in the book okay i have it here um here's the book to have and have not beautiful cover yeah nice nice boat there on yeah, the cover nice boat um and it's to have which is one story which is about uh harry morgan he's transporting cargo um, from Key West into another place because he's on cargo runs and they're like tricking him into taking human cargo and then Have Not is a completely separate story. It's like another short story. So this is effectively two books or, or two novellas in one tied with another short story. Um, one's in first person, one's in third. That's how much of a distance there is. Like they're they're so separate. They're even formed separately. Um, so it's it wasn't even received like as a novel. Like it's compared against his novels, but for me, it's it's a few different stories that are uh, separate from each other. Uh, and the book is about like the non-trust of the American government after the Depression. Um, the movie's made a few years after when we're looking into World War II, so it takes that context and like pairs it with Casablanca, and is more about like distrust I, of Nazis, right? That's that's definitely the big thing. Like, if there was ever a movie that's a derivative of Casablanca this is one of them like to have yes. and have not is yes. so so obviously uh attempting to be another casablanca and kind of succeeding at it yes it actually is the one that succeeds at it if any ever does right other than space jam a new legacy I think <laughs> the one that that really nailed what casablanca was about there's there's like another one that warner made very shortly after with okay. a lot of the same cast with like humphrey bogart <laughs> and uh peter laurie is in it again with sydney green street and it's called across the pacific yeah but but this one i feel like is one where again you you've got like like bogart again uh here and and you've got like the the French you know territory instead of Morocco you're in Martinique and you've got the the uh you know alluring like persona you know the kind of Igrid Bergmany without like the foreign appeal you know like <laughs> yeah. like Laura Bacall is very you know kind of bread and butter American there but she still has that like like kind of you know mystique to her that that somebody right. like like uh bergman has or whatnot and and they're all and they're getting together and just like sharing this you know terrific chemistry in this you know uh interesting locale and there's like you know political stuff going on in the background you know in, in terms of like the war and stuff not as explicitly dealing with the nazis as like in casablanca but hmm. definitely you have the influence of like the nazis and the french government there and stuff and so it's entirely definitely in the same you know camp there as capitalizing off of casablanca but also just like totally not giving a shit and doing its own thing at the same time i mean you could see like the links there like like his boat has like the uh key west thing, or the florida keys thing on it and then but then it's moved instead of cuba to like a french island so it's moving even more directionally toward a casablanca in a way the movie is um more spiritually linked to that but it's almost like casablanca but what if it had like a few screwball elements and and kind of like a zany you know more zany setup but but with strong hemingway characters um at least one do, 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 one you, do you feel character. the hemingway in this at all because like i i would yes. also argue yes. that like it's 
it's also kind of just like just Bogart in, yeah. in lots of ways. Like I feel like it's it, Harry Morgan is the Bogart persona. Like his differences from Rick in in Casablanca are minimal and in or like your Sam Spades and such. You know, it's it's still that that hard boiled edge that he was you know so often you know pushed to to portray all the time. This idea of Humphrey Bogart that we carried that again like you know he he was an actor and he got to show himself off in a, in a number of roles, but like very limited like you usually he's doing this i do feel the hemingway in it just because to have and have not for me is only about uh harry morgan like there's no other aspect of the book it would be like what if the book had a fourth short story in it from the hawk's perspective i think that's how i look <laughs> at the movie like what if there was a, a prequel in the book that and it was just another chapter and it was it would fit perfectly well, for me. Well, that's what it sounds like from the the description there of our, of our little skit that we did. Is yeah. that he basically set out to create a prequel of of how Harry Morgan met his wife. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it would is... fit so well in the book. Like I'd believe it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and and for for all of like I think the kind of weird ragging that kind of goes on here about it, it's like it's actually again it's a you know these aren't complaints they're just oddities about yeah. the, the conception of the film that kind of brought it into okay. being which are which are fascinating so the other strange thing about the conception well we had like three screenwriters on it we had jules firthman and uh a guy called stuttering stam who seems unidentifiable but also uh, <laughs> hemingway's great literary rival william faulkner like the complete antithesis of everything hemingway wrote was faulkner or, like he just wrote like Hemingway would say he wrote in the $10 words and uh, Faulkner would, you know, say Hemingway should probably find a thesaurus eventually, but, um, <laughs> but just like the antithesis. And I think the idea is that Faulkner threw in a few ideas in the script and um, Hawks probably also had a commanding element in the screenwriting. So. Yeah. So much of it as well as like, there's an improvisational element, and, you know, Hawks's own, you know, distinct personality is just, it's, it's, fingerprinted all over the place here um you know so much of it even like the the most famous scene of the movie was conceived for for like a screen test originally for for lauren bacall and so that's yeah. all made up by by hawks <laughs> so it's like the the whole film is like amalgam from so many different like like legends here you know that makes you it got, cool right oh absolutely and it's yeah. and it's terrific but it is it, because it's all kind of melted together like that sometimes it's kind of hard to parse out who who contributed what you know yeah. how how this kind of evolved from its original idea to what it is now and w what it ultimately is about because uh definitely watching at times you're kind of like I, I with like a lot of hawks films uh especially it's like it's very easy to kind of just put everything out of your mind except for like the the characters and the the, the actors here and, and the interactions <laughs> they're having and the rapport like do I, do I really care about the Harry Morgan, like, you know, helping these, these French people, you know, these resistance fighters or whatever. Yeah. And, do you care about them? the French people, especially? Um, uh, uh, it's, it's not really a very like, well, like kind of like, like it, the importance, the importance of it is not emphasized. I think is, is the kind of thing to, to state here because it's there. It's, it's a prevalent plot element throughout the film. 
it's just not what the film is about in any way it's it's kind of there as an excuse for like some some occasional action or like like the, the political intrigue in the background to kind of create uh, uh an underlying tension to, to mm -hmm. things but it's it's not at all the impression you walk away with from the film i would be surprised if if the majority of people who watch this film even remember that it has like a a, a world war ii setting yeah um i mean that it is like background i mean well it's it's it, it it's is but it is because Casablanca existed, right? And <laughs> you could draw on that comparison. Okay, again, I, I think it's there for like the the pulpier espionage elements yeah. that you want in it, because that's that's what this is in like a lot of like I said other Hawks films is that you've got these more enticing you know story elements uh, as a background as a setting mm. for your characters here, but it's not at all about that. <laughs> yeah, it is it's entirely not about the it's entirely about the people that you set in this destination. But isn't it great to have something that that I really cherish, which is like this seaside, like uh, seaside noir thing going on with that with those settings and and that feeling behind it, that intrigue, um, isn't that great? And then to have these actors, especially Lauren Bacall, uh, that that first look she gives him, which they called the look, like in all their promotional materials I sent to you, I was just mm -hmm. like, this should set my television on fire. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's that electric. If if the book is about Harry Morgan, the movie is about Lauren Bacall. Yeah, it's yeah. it's her movie through and through. It was her first film role. I think Hawks picked her out of like is it a her first. Yes, yes, no she shit. was she was nineteen in this in this film, Jeez. which is incredible. Uh, particularly because uh, Humphrey Bogart was forty four, <laughs> <laughs> and their chemistry still plays, uh, and their, oh, their yeah, romance. Yeah. Of oh, they're real, real romance. They were, you know, uh, a couple after this. Uh, yeah. Much to the chagrin of, of Hawks, who who was not happy with Lauren Bacall. Uh, hooking up with with Bogart there. He was uh, only twice her age. Uh, uh, like sensibly, like he probably wanted a piece of that pie, but um, hey now. <laughs> but hey, it, it what what ha what came with it seems to be you know again entirely genuine. She was devoted to Bogart, and he was to her. He divorced his wife so that he could marry her, and they were together till he died. Uh, they they had like a real relationship formed off on on the set of this film here. There's like that. There's this jealousy too, like in the way that she plays across the other woman. Um, that that seems real, like it seems tangible for for uh, her feelings about Bogart and another woman. I, I could read that on the screen. Mm -hmm. And and she was like hand hand picked by Hawks for okay. for this role, and he crafted her personality. A lot of it based off of his, his own wife, actually, who was also called Slim. Uh, okay. To to no coincidence of the film there, and and you could see it in some prior efforts, prior films as well, where Hawks is crafting a a similar persona in all of his his female uh, leads, you know. Uh, and if you look at them, they they have this like hard edge to them, and they can play, you know, ju just as tough with the men of the film, and they you know they're able to to snap back at them with you know flirtatious quips, you know, and and kind of go toe to toe. Uh, and and that's definitely I think you know Lauren Bacall is kind of like the uh, the epitome of that in in this film in that she's you know she's got this uh, edge to her and this you know allure and this mystique uh, that is is enrapturing for us as it is for Bogart's character in the film, um, you know and again it's it's all summed up in that in that whistle scene.
<laughs> that the innuendo of the whistle the whistle uh line i think it plays yeah, it's it's so it iconic it's 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 iconic it's memorable it's um it's it's sensual and 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 electrifying and it and it's really one of those you know the divine moments of of you know sleek hollywood uh filmmaking that that just kind of make you take a take a step back for a second you know yeah <laughs> and and again those are the moments that stand out in the movie none of like like you know there i don't think there's a whole lot to talk about in terms of like subject or, or theme or yeah. even character like maybe uh, character you know, but maybe, yeah but it's so well, much more about personality i think say, than character so the way hemingway builds characters is interesting versus other authors is that he builds them based on their relation to other people and how they act like within a scene is this is effectively how his characters are built like he won't describe them he'll show you their how they talk and what they do and then that's the character i think that follows in this movie i think that's what i mean like it's a hemingway character like it's not described there's not like a lot of subject and that mm -hmm. way it does feel like a hemingway film more truthfully than than possibly the ones directly based on his text <laughs> honestly i feel that way yeah Oh, no, I, I, I take you for that. Certainly, I, I think when it, I think character is just such a hard thing to describe when it comes to examples like this because you can't point to, you can't like like dissect someone like like Harry Morgan or or Slim and and say these are the things that these characters stand for. They they have these principles or they they tend they have these tendencies or or whatnot. Like you can point out some specific things but it's so much more like you said about how they they interact with other people than it is about them as individuals that you can define and, and latch on to i feel like it's a film so much more about chemistry and persona than it is about a more grounded and definable aspects of these people yeah absolutely and, um yeah and that's uh, a lot of it like more perhaps more than any other howard hawks films where it's just it's a film to kind of like let yourself kind of just like soak into and, and just like like kind of absorb and, and not really retain necessarily just to kind of like feel the the energies of the these performers just you know being with one another and exchanging dialogue and stuff again like the the what of everything is so inconsequential absolutely it's all about the how right it's all about it's about how it's conveyed to us and, mm -hmm. and what that feels like but but not what the film's ever about um I think like the Martinic, like that scene, just the whole like French fishing village uh, really plays for me too. Uh, that vibe um, works well. Yeah, there's there's so much again. It's like a, an atmospheric quality in the filmmaking here. It's the film is very un Hollywood in in some ways, and obviously not in, you know, always because it's still very like, you know, glamorous and, you know, yeah. very, <laughs> very, still very a Hawks film. Yeah. yeah, but but it's so unconcerned with like like narrative is so much more about setting you in a, in a particular environment and just kind of allowing you to, you know, be part of this world. That's not typically the priority of films of this era. Uh, and and so much of it is is like the setting that the tropical setting there of Martinique, but also just this sense of the the kind of the smoke filled bar that has those almost noir like idea you know ideas, but it's a little different. It's very kind of like almost like dreamlike. Yeah. Um, you've got like the I I think part of what helps set the stage as well, uh, which is definitely something to highlight and talk about, is the 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 musical interludes that are kind of 
present throughout the film and sprinkled through uh hoagie carmichael on the piano there as a cricket it's surprising like it elevated the film more than i thought it did um i i think my overall impression is a little bit less than last time but things like the atmosphere and the music and really just soaking in it as you say it has an overall cohesive effect for me if it's if it's less uh kind of in the same for me from what i recalled of the film it's yeah. because i i have such a hard time pinpointing the the point of the film other than to just exist with it again like i i don't know that it's really trying to do or say anything different no. and just the fact that it exists it's kind of like bewildering in in this state and in the whole idea like i'm like wow again like the, the idea that hawks took this un you know filmable novel or whatever threw all of it out and then just made something <laughs> entirely like it, different like i say is, just another chapter into this uh indefinable novel that probably shouldn't exist in its own form yeah and it's just it's a it's a weird concoction that totally works in a way that yeah. is difficult to express watching the film uh you know uh the other day i was like i don't know that we should have done this for a podcast because <laughs> what, what exactly do you say well like uh, other than the killers maybe and and maybe sometimes um um uh, maybe a couple of the other hemingway i don't know farewell to arms and um for whom the bell tolls like there are other adaptations but i think this is up there with the killers is like the high bar for them right uh yeah i think this is definitely the most uh iconic of of the uh Hemingway adaptations. Um, it's certainly and and the most iconic, uh, maybe second most iconic of the Bogey Bacall films. This is the second yeah. one we've covered after the highly underrated Dark Passage here on the show, but it was the first of four, and um, you know perhaps the most uh, seductive of, of them all. I think the chemistry here is is the best of the four, and the the, the laissez faire approach to you know anything aside from you know pr producing that couple on screen and, and creating that electricity i think works the the best there are other examples like in the big sleep where they where hawks literally threw out a, an important plot scene to just film another like innuendo laden dialogue exchange between him and bacall <laughs> but uh you know it, it's it's never quite is uh you know a, a uh, enticing, I think, as, as this one is. Although you could argue that that one is a, a better, you know, narrative, better characters, whatever you want to do. I don't know. Yeah. I find of the four, this one might be the most effective. I don't know. I'm, on this rewatch, I'm still leaning more towards Dark Passage, which is just a really cool film, really, yeah. really interesting. I really uh, like experiment. Dark Passage. I'm glad. I'm glad we started with that one because it, yeah. it was unexpected. <laughs> um, but uh, maybe we'll get to the killers at some point, as far as the Hemingway canon goes. Yeah, there's a couple, a uh, couple, couple interesting killers, and the killers is so succinct in all its Hemingway qualities. A very good short story that adapts well, um, mm -hmm. better than this book. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, again, it's a it's a fascinating non adaptation. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that anti adaptation, let's call it. It's a yeah. Again, it's it's all all the the elements about it, all the the ones that shouldn't work, and it feels like the 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 careless uh, attempts or approach to making a film here. It just it's like Hawks clearly had 
a, a a single objective in mind and i think he achieves it phenomenally yeah. and the fact that nothing else particularly matters doesn't matter <laughs> yeah it doesn't matter to me uh i didn't think we'd have a lot but i think we've covered enough um yeah i, I think he at least got an idea of why the film works if you don't know how it works at least well, uh <laughs> i think that's begs... enough to I think that begs one final question, David. Um, to have or have not? Um, uh, have, definitely. Have definitely always have. sounds better than having not, doesn't it? Uh, certainly. Uh, what, uh, what do we it, have in store for next week? Or what have we not? Um, for <laughs> not, we're going to cover an, um, ranking M. Night Shyamalan's filmography. That's what yes, we... not. And, and for our haves, we have... <laughs> will have our... <laughs> covering <laughs> the green mile that's our that's our film for next week here hey, an interesting getting... one that i i have been wanting to cover i'm pretty sure since 2019 i've had we've it on my talked mind about it since then i think i think we yeah. both like the green mile a lot in our memories and we'll find out how we do plays. it's just it's a really long movie and it's yeah. been hard to to get to <laughs> because it's not one i think that as many people care about but maybe yeah. they do and they're just hiding in the shadows and and we're going to bring about a revival of the film i don't know i'm excited to rewatch it and talk about it and just get into it again it's it's a it's a adolescent david favorite so let's see if it holds up yeah i'm very curious too all right uh well until next time Thanks for tuning in this week. Make sure, as always, to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com, for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Twitter as well, at The Twin Geeks, and individually at Calvin Kemp and at David A. Punch. Don't forget to check out our sister video game show, The Daydream Cast, with Pavlos and Brogan, not to mention our Ranking the Monsters show with Steven and Calvin as well. Uh, both are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and rating if you can, and we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. Maybe it happens this way. Maybe we really belong together, but after all, all that we know. Maybe it's just for a day Love is as changeable as